Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. You're listening to Nightmare on Film Street. The current time is 6.66. Traffic is clear ahead from here to the afterlife. But it's hell outside. For the next hour, you're on Nightmare Time. So, let's give a grave welcome to our hosts, John and Kim. Hello again, fiends, and welcome back to Bob Clark's Creepy Christmas Spooktacular, hosted by Nightmare on Film Street, the horror movie podcast of the casually obsessed. There are too many goddamn words at the beginning of this show. You were the one that made it this weird variety show. <laughs> 100% my fault. I'm John. I'm Kim. And welcome to Nightmare on Film Street's variety show that we're calling <laughs> Uncle Bob Clark's Creepy Christmas Spooktacular. Uh, it is a variety show of sorts, similar to last week's episode. We've got another musical number for you. We've got a perfect cocktail pairing for the movie we're talking about today. Kim's going to show us one of her secret talents live on the radio tonight. <laughs> Can't wait. We, there might even be an appearance from the Morbin Tabernacle Choir, <laughs> courtesy uh, in, in honor, in memoriam for Barb. We're talking about Bob Clark's Black Christmas today. A proto, the, the proto slasher of all proto slashers. What does proto mean? Proto means that slashers had not necessarily come out. Oh, it's, like prototype. Yes, like exactly. It, it made the mold. Y- yeah, it didn't perfect it, but it really helped oh, introduce I us think... to it. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes you got to sand the edges on these things. No, I think fucking Black Christmas is it. Man, that's the thing. Episode over. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for coming. How is it that in 1974, we got the two best proto-slashers ever made? What's the other one? Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, shit. They came, it's so funny, because watching this, I was in my head, I kept thinking that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre had come out the year before, and like, oh, that's so great, because I really think that there's like one key scene in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre that Bob Clark probably like really grabbed onto for building... Billy, uh, and nope, they came out within like weeks apart of each other. Wow, it, 1974 gave us the quintessential summer horror and the quintessential winter horror. Yeah, like, not, like just great, not even slashers. Like I'm just talking about like the best of the best. Yeah, if you could watch this in any particular order, I would say like this would this would be a great night at the drive-in, and the order makes zero sense. But I think this is the order to watch them in. First up, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Second feature, Black Christmas. Third feature, bonus feature, Saturday only, Halloween. Now, they seem like obvious pairings, but I do think they're all doing something very interesting uh, that I think is very similar, especially in how they regard their killer. Does this have anything to do with the discussion we're having tonight on Black Christmas? I mean, it might, so perhaps I should hold it. Yes, this is part two of our Christmas variety show. Last week, we were talking about Bob Clark's death dream... uh, Family classic. Slash Dead of Night. Slash Dead of Night. Family classic. A perfect movie if you're going home for the holidays, whether you're going home. It's not a holiday movie at all. Let's just give it up. Let's just move along here on the train. Okay, fine. (laughs) This week's episode, 
pure Christmas through and through. Oh, so Un- Christmas. Undeni- it's in the title. Undeniably. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we uh, not the first time that we've talked about this movie on the podcast. I mean, heck, I think it was last year, maybe two years ago, we recorded... Oh, fuck, maybe it was like three years ago at this point where we recorded a uh, live... Time is but a... Yeah. Yeah, we recorded, we recorded a live commentary track for the movie. We've talked about it before. We made that awful mistake that lots of podcasters do in their first year where they just come out talking about all their favorites and all the hits. Like, oh, that's great. Yeah. The, the, Talk the, about all the best films with the worst audio quality. Yeah. Really, while you're cutting your teeth, while you're figuring out your show, let's burn all the hits down. Yeah, you don't know all of the words that you overutilize and need to cut that shit out of. Oh, I mean, five years on, I'm still saying the same shit. Oh, yeah, I've learned nothing. But yeah, what is was like our fifth episode, we were like, let's do John Carpenter's Halloween and Bob Clark's Black Christmas. What a great double bill. This is going to be so great. We're never going to have new thoughts and revelations on these movies down the road. But with that in mind, Kim, what are your three good things for Black Christmas? Well, I think the number one good thing, and I, is kind of a given for the theme of the episode, the theme of the film, is that it is so Christmassy. Yeah. It is evokes the Christmas feeling. It's got that warm and cozy, but also that it's cold outside, blustery, windy. The, sorry, there's... Warm nog. Yeah, okay, yep, there was more. <laughs> gift sharing, <laughs> lights, decorations, friends, Christmas. Was this a poem that you wrote <laughs> for your good thing number one? Uh, I'm done now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> good thing number two. I've seen this movie a hundred times. I truly don't know who the killer is. This is a whodunit that never tells you whodunit. I'm still like... Is that a spoiler? No. I didn't say... (laughs) How can you... How can you spoil an ambiguous ending? I don't know. Kim is drunk tonight. Uh, I'm recovering from a cold. I haven't slept well. I'm on a lot of medication. Yeah. It comes through. I took a bunch of gravel. I wasn't feeling good. Right on. That's a, is that is that what the kids are doing nowadays? Just take a handful of gravel. And I see wasn't what feeling good. <laughs> this is the 2023 lewd. Like take take a bunch of gravel and try and podcast. Oh, oh. this is a mess. <laughs> good thing number three. What was good thing number two? Oh yeah. What was good thing number two? I'm gonna take over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna say good thing number three, and I think we can all appreciate this, regardless of where you live when you're watching the movie. This features some of the best Canadian accents ever. And what I love about it, too, is that, especially when you look it up on Wikipedia, like, Black Christmas, the 1974 Canadian slasher directed by Bob Clark. Canada just took this as their own. They were like, those are our voices. And, like, yes, they used some Canadian tax credits to make the movie. It's, it's this. Th- you see how defensive Kim is? <laughs> Kim, a Canadian, was just like, well, what, what, do you, what do you mean it's not Canadian? They filmed it in Toronto. Yeah. It's set at the, the University of Toronto. With an American crew. And an Australian lead, and is set in America. Margot Kidder's Canadian, I think. <laughs> you think <laughs> honorary at best. So is Art Handel, yeah, I Art... think. <laughs> a- anyway, just based on the way he says "oat." <laughs> Very clear. It's... And Barb Clark oh, loves Canada. Yeah, yeah, no. As it... we learned in our last episode, when and... you moved from Florida to Canada and became Canadian, and you can get a whole bunch of Canadian you, you, unfettered <laughs> access to Canadian <laughs> accents in this movie. It's great. And there's hockey. They play hockey. That's how Canadian it is. (laughs) 
Those are three good things from people who have seen this movie a hundred thousand times. We watch it every year. I watch it in the summer sometimes, and I'm I'm probably bound to watch it two to three times every Christmas. I love, 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 love Black Christmas. Um, if you've never seen it before, I mean, I, I don't know if those three good things are a hundred percent going to sell you on it. But like, if you've never seen Black Christmas and you like slashers, I highly encourage you to check this one out because. It came out at a time before the killer POV and before the whodunit nature of every 80s slasher that you've probably already seen. It's 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 so interesting to watch a movie that was doing its own thing. It's definitely pulling from like Italian thrillers like Giallo's at, at a time when Giallo's were still pretty new, to be perfectly honest. And it's great to see somebody creating the formula and doing something so unique and original with it, you know, 10 years before it became the template for a slasher. Yeah, because the whole thing with a whodunit is you're performing a magic trick. You are doing sleight of hand. You're sh- you're showing hints. Everything is being done in front of your eyes, and you don't see it until the very end. And yeah. that's what's so wonderful about slashers and whodunits and uh, murder mysteries. And Black Christmas is so fucking good at it. Yeah, and so many sassy characters in this. Everybody's just full of sass, especially Margot Kidder. We're going to cut to the trailer, and when we come back, we're going to get in full discussion on Bob Clark's Black Christmas. But before we go, we have our first segment, our little cocktail corner, something to get you in the mood, a little rosy-cheeked for a holiday horror movie. We tossed this at the end of last week's episode, but I think it might not be a bad idea to drop it in now, especially given the energy of the show. This is a little drink we're calling The House Mother's Little Secret. Now, it's a sherry-based cocktail, which is not typically the foundational alcohol for a standard cocktail, but it's the holiday season, so we can get a little creep, we can get a little crazy, you know, no big deal. Now, the, the tricky thing about sherry is that you want it to be cool and cold, but not chilled. You don't want to, you don't want to leave it in the freezer. That's going to make it too cold. The refrigerator's not So you're perfect. saying the back of a toilet bowl. I think <laughs> the perfect temperature... <laughs> is in the back of a toilet bowl. You just pop the lid on that little sucker, drop her in 15 minutes before you're getting ready to serve the drink. Don't forget about it. Otherwise, that's going to be weird. You know, if you're worried about fishing it out, you don't want to put your hand in the back of the toilet bowl. Now, keep in mind, that's clean water. Uh, you just, just tie a little... <laughs> I'm not saying drink it. Um, you just tie a little string around the top of that bottle, plop her on down, hoist her back up when it's time to go. And you really, the crucial part about this drink. How is this a cocktail? The crucial part (laughs) about the house mother's little secret is keeping that temperature consistent. Now, this is nitpicky, of course, but, uh, you know, unless your vessel, your, your glass, your coupe, whatever you're putting your drink in, isn't the exact same temperature as the sherry, you're gonna throw this drink off completely. And obviously, I'm not suggesting you put a cup in the back of the toilet bowl. That'd be insane. So I think best for this one is you just want to pour yourself a little ounce and a half directly in your mouth. <laughs> you don't want to put this in a cup whatsoever. You're just going to take a quick little nibble after you've taken it out of the back of the toilet bowl. Now, as garnish, this is optional and con- unconventional, I'll say. But this, don't forget, this is how Mrs. McHenry takes her cocktail. You might want to just, 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 
like a half a teaspoon of toothpaste. Swish that around <laughs> in your mouth at the same time. <laughs> now that seems crazy. And you're like, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to like this. But what is toothpaste but mint? It's festive time season. You're going to get yourself a nice <laughs> little <laughs> Christmas flavoring on your house mother's little secret. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It really is. Because if you keep that bottle in the toilet bowl, it keeps on giving. Yeah, and it's definitely a lot better than the bottle that you keep hidden in a shoebox in the closet or in a hollowed-out book in the library. Surely there's probably also one How in has Barb bag. not found that book yet? Well, Barb definitely, I think, found the one in the closet. That's why it was empty. <laughs> but that's what we. That's the house mother's little secret. We're going to toss the trailer when we get back. Bob Clark's Creepy Christmas Spooktacular continues! A high school girl's been murdered. Mr. Harrison's daughter is missing. And now at the house where she lives, the other girls are getting obscene phone calls. Yeah, what I've done is I've tapped this phone so that when it rings, it'll ring at the station house, too. There was a little girl murdered over in the park tonight. Yes, I heard. Your phone's ringing. Terminal 55. Remember those idyllic scenes out of your childhood? Crisp winter nights, star bright, sleigh bells, crackling yule logs, candlelight glistening off of shimmering Christmas trees, chestnuts roasting over open fires, carolers beneath snow-covered window ledges. Remember those. Remember them well. After Black Christmas, they'll never be the same again. Black Christmas, starring Olivia Hussey, Keir Dulay, Margot Kidder, and starring John Saxon as Lieutenant Fuller. If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. Uncle Bob's Black Christmas is currently sitting at a 7.1 out of 10 on IMDb, a 72% on Rotten Tomatoes, and a 3.8 out of 5 on Letterboxd. It will also not surprise you to learn that Gene Siskel hated it. Uh, He thought it was a... As derivative as any other horror movie, despite being incredibly unique. Like, goddamn. Did he say it was unique? No, he didn't. Was he like, it's incredibly unique? No, he was just like, you know, it's just another one of these fucking movies. Like, it's it's completely unlike anything else that was coming out in 1974. And he's like, seen it. (laughs) This isn't Saturday Night Fever. I hate it. 
Actually, his favorite movie, by the way. Uh, it's fun to it's 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 fun to poke fun at Gene Siskel because he also loved John Carpenter's The Thing, so he had taste at the very least. Sometimes. Sometimes hated slashers. That's just what it came down to, and like I mean, it it, it was the seventies. It was definitely the heyday of the serial killer, so I could understand why maybe somebody running a, a rampage through a sorority house left a bad taste in everybody's mouth. Did you happen to read anywhere that that was a big problem when this movie went to TV? The sorority house thing. Yeah, so this movie was set for television premiere the week that Ted Bundy killed a whole bunch of people. Oh, God! Yeah. And when so- he did that uh, escapade? Escapade. <laughs> I think we call it a rampage. He went berserk. He, he, killed, he murdered a whole bunch of people, and it was awful. And the governor of Florida basically implored NBC to not air it. That's tasteful. Yeah, and NBC, I don't think they flat out said no, but they, they let all of their uh, you know channels, whoever, distributors... Or re- repeating the the, uh, the program, the option of playing something oh, else. Oh, so like make their own call? So like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't blame this us. This is your fault? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is more true crime history to Black Christmas than I had known about. Turns out that the screenwriter had based this on a real murder that had happened in Montreal. Oh, really? Now, obviously, it's... I feel like that's another point for making it Canadian. God damn. So, <laughs> so the writer is Canadian. All I'm saying is, like, there's American flags in this movie. Like, this movie is set in America. No, it's not. It's made by American people. That's no, not. But it is 100% a Canadian horror movie. <laughs> it gets dark at 4 p.m. It's cold. It's right. ours. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, it's, that's the thing. Like, this movie takes place over, I think, 24 hours. It's 90, dark most of them. 90% of the movie's in <laughs> blackness. Yeah, they're just like, oh, well, must be noon. Sun's gone. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I got this little quote here from uh, from some research I was doing. That Black Christmas is based on true occurrence in Westmount, Montreal, in November 1943. George Webster... 1943, wow. Yeah, yeah. George Webster, 14 years old at the time, killed his mother with a baseball bat at home. Uh, he also attacked his brother, sister, and a family friend, but they just suffered injuries, didn't die. He was accused of his mother's murder, but judged incompetent to stand trial and was sent to a mental hospital. Hmm. So that's I, I would think he's more of the basis for Billy than anything else. But I also found that um, he had probably also based this on uh, some weirdo who was known as the lipstick killer he'd killed three women in chicago between 1945 and 1946 and apparently wrote the words stop me on the wall in their lipstick Mm. and the original title of the screenplay was stop stop me me, now that got adapted quite a bit once bob clark came on board he He, was like christmas yeah he's like let's make let's make a christmas let's set it a sorority house and you know what let's for fun throw in some humor uh really by by the sounds of it changed the movie completely and is the black christmas that we know today Hmm. It's really interesting that there there is kind of all of this loose source material for the film because that's maybe one of my favorite things about it is that when we come into the film, the sorority girls are already familiar with this caller. Like they've already been receiving they've, these they've, obscene they phone got a calls. Nickname for They're like, it's the Mona, and they all come in. They're just like, <laughs> oh shit, he's on the phone again. Yeah, and the the calls are so fucking creepy because yeah. as many times as I've seen this film, I could not tell you 
90% of what's being said on the calls. Mm-hmm. And there's something magical about not knowing. Uh, magical in the horror sense. <laughs> yeah, you are, uh, I don't know, it's like looking at a car accident, right? Like, you're just like the girls in the movie. They're they're very interested. They, ooh, he's back again. And then immediately they're horrified listening to it. Because it's so fucking creepy. Like, parts of it are sexualized and creepy. Then there's the, this weird, maybe multiple personality aspect. There's somebody's reliving a memory or a fantasy. Yeah, like, like there are so many layers of psychology happening here yeah he's building a world in there there's a cinematic universe on that phone call which makes sense that the filmmakers are working with a backstory in their heads they have source material that they've made for this character that Mm -hmm. we don't get to learn which is great yeah um but i feel like we're coming into a world that exists and that's something that's so magical about black christmas magical in the horror sense Uh is that the characters feel so real the killer feels real, and I feel like I am seeing this Christmas. I feel like I'm seeing this 24-hour period of their lives. Oh, you're saying that within this 20... Oh, okay. It feels like a snapshot. It doesn't yeah. feel like I'm watching a movie. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, yeah, you've, you've walked into a documentary. And, like, even though you're only seeing 24 hours of their lives, you're getting a whole huge sense of how the rest of the season has gone. There's a lot going on. Like, especially, like, main character, Jess, and her boyfriend, Peter, they're dealing with a very serious thing right now. And it's B-plot, really. It's it's a minor plot. We hear about it through phone calls and two conversations she has with him. In any other movie, unless it was integral to the story, we wouldn't learn all of these details. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't know about Claire and her boyfriend, their relationship, unless it was integral to the plot. But we were, we learned so much about these people and they get, they get personality traits. Like Phil has a personality. Barb has a personality. And in terms of slasher sense, they are kind of killer fodder. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, they get maybe two things you know about them and yes. then they're gone. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. We wouldn't get to see Barb cracking jokes and having single scenes on her own where she's basically stealing the show for minutes at a time Yeah, for her to only end up dead. All of the content would go to Jess. Yes. That's the craziest thing. And so it, when you were saying that Jess and Peter's sort of uh, <laughs> love triangle with a baby in it is B-plot, I think that about everything in the movie. There's so much B-plot. Everything is B-plot. But it's all it's all happening all at once right here. And you don't necessarily know what's important. It feels like real life where it's not any one particular thing that's important, but it's like all of these things together. I mean, don't get me wrong. At some point, people start getting murdered in the house. That's probably very important. But it's it's all of this stuff that happens together, which I think is super... Super important for when we start trying to talk at the end of the episode about who the killer is and and who did what. Yeah. Because that is really up in the air. Like, the audience, like, we are not kept in the dark. We see that Claire is the first murderer. We know she's dead right away. Oh, yeah. There's no mystery that somebody is killing these people. But... We don't necessarily completely see the full picture. We don't know the entire connection. We know the girls are getting creepy phone calls. They're trying to tell the police they're getting creepy phone calls. Their friend is missing. They don't know if the two are connected, but they might be connected. There's also another little girl missing, which is an entirely separate story. This is a fucking spider's web of a story, man. It's, but it's proof positive that there is so much going on here that the film is spinning plates. Yes. And it's doing such a great job because... 
the characters are just doing things like step by step, like, oh, they're having a search party, so we're going to go do a search party. But like, oh, now they're tapping the phone, so we're tapping the phone. Like, you are pivoting through all of these different storylines. Then we go see uh, Jess and, and, and tell Peter that she doesn't want to keep the baby. Like, you are transported through all of these different storylines, and you don't know which ones are going to help you figure out who the murderer is upstairs. Aren't you kind of surprised every time you watch this movie that it works? Like, don't you think that this could, there's like a few wrong decisions and this would just be a boring movie that doesn't know what to focus on? Every time I watch this movie, movie, I leave thinking like, wow, I think this might be one of my favorite horror films of all time. Like, I think this is the best slasher ever. And then I completely forget about it again. And then <laughs> next Christmas we watch it. I'm like, wow, I think this is the best horror movie ever. It is yeah. so fucking good. I know. It has such a weird ability to just last for the season, you know, and then it's gone. It's probably because you only watch it once a year. Like Scream, you can watch anytime you want. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's. I always forget the ending of this movie. This one. Yes. You I know, never you know remember it. You know, it's fucking funny is there was a key moment in the movie that I had forgotten. And like, I've seen this a hundred times easily, but like, there's a moment where she's having a really twisted, creepy phone call with the guy, with the moaner, the guy on the phone. And he's saying back verbatim, uh, key moments of a conversation that she had with Peter in the house earlier that night. And so, like, in in some sense, you're like, oh, shit, is that Peter on the phone? And, like, I just always forget about that. And there's no way that it it just always went by and I I missed it because there's whole conversations with Phyllis about, like, oh, well, he couldn't be Peter. That definitely wasn't Peter on the phone. So, like, you, you, it just, whoop. Just like it pops out of my head as soon as I'm done watching it. That is a really great moment. I don't. I maybe it's too early to talk about like the implications of that scene. Oh, we'll get to it. Oh fuck. Yeah. This is a good movie. <laughs> the person that I feel bad about more and more every year is Claire's dad. Is Claire's dad? Yes, and Barb, because Barb gets the first phone call. There's a lot of information in this movie. Key plot details over the phone. Okay, I, and that's not, maybe not a huge surprise. It's the 70s. Nobody had cell phones. Nobody had pagers. Like, it wasn't, everything was happening on the phone or in person. But the first phone call we get is Barb's mom. We only we don't hear Barb's mom at all. Like We just see the one side of the conversation with Barb, but she's basically telling her, hey, I'm not spending Christmas with you. It's maybe a week before Christmas. Like, everybody's leaving. I think it's a couple days before Christmas. Yeah, I would say done. it's like the 23rd. That's crazy. Um, so she is just given the sudden news that she's not hanging out with her mom. Her mom is basically dumping her for Christmas. And then she just starts becoming an insufferable drunk for the rest of the movie. And it's just a bummer. Like at first you think that this is just who Barb is and Barb's always like this. And she was probably going to be like this, whether or not she had Christmas with her mom and she, she was just going to be this, but with mom. You know, and I don't think that's true at all. Like, I think she just immediately starts getting staying drunk all day as soon as she gets that 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 bad phone call from her mom. Because the next day she's drinking with kids. She's giving kids alcohol. Like, I don't know. I don't know. We never see what Barb is like before the events of the movie. I don't think she's like this. Yeah. And I think we separate just how young these characters are. Like, it's a sorority. They're probably ranging from 18 to 21. Yeah. Barb is maybe 19 years old. Mm Mm-hmm. And her mom is like, fuck you, I'm going to have Christmas with my new husband, is what I picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And she's like, well, I'll go skiing with my friends. And and I guess a couple of the girls agree to go skiing with her. It's kind of just like side little conversations, but 
she's going to be spending Christmas alone. Yeah, absolutely. And that's sad. That is sad. She does have good friends, though, because by all accounts, Phyllis, Phil, who uh, is supposed to be spending time with her boyfriend they were gonna go to a cabin like he he's the guy who's playing santa in this uh it's, it's pretty funny he's, he's he's only got like a couple scenes but he's real bummed out because like it sounds like he had planned this like romantic christmas cabin getaway that's now ruined because phil's too good of a friend to leave barb alone on christmas phil is really the understated mvp of this movie yeah. i the great thing about watching movies like this over and over and over again is you get to watch different characters more than you would have on like the first or second watch yeah and I had a real great time just, like, appreciating Phil as a friend and when we watched it this time. Yeah. Did you know she was, like, last-minute casting? Wow. Now, here's the crazy thing. So, Phil, Phyllis, is played by Andrea Martin, who is the only character who re- comes back in Black Xmas, the 2006 one. Not her character, because obviously Phil's dead by the end of the movie. R.I.P. Phil. Uh, but she comes back and plays the house mother in Black Xmas. Uh, and I, whenever I've talked to people about who Andrea Martin is, like usually I'll say like, "Oh, she's she's the kooky aunt from My Big Fat Greek Wedding." Who's like, "What do you mean you don't eat meat?" <laughs> but if anybody I'm talking to is like a big comedy nerd or like loves. Saturday Night Live. I always say that Andrea Martin, because she also was on SCTV, uh, is kind of like Canada's... Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Is Canada's Gilda Radner. And turns out Gilda Radner was fucking cast in the role as Phyllis. Oh, really? Yeah, but it's just like she, she got, oh, like I, I don't know, she couldn't get out of some sort of commitment with Saturday Night Live, and so she couldn't end up coming up to Canada from New York, so they replaced her with Andrea Martin, which is just perfect recasting, and she fucking kills it in this movie. Hmm. She's great. She's got so much sympathy for what everybody's going through during this Christmas that when she finally turns on Barb, you, it, it feels like dad yelling at you. It you does. Know? Yeah. She's like disappointed. And she it's doesn't even only, look her in the eye. She's it's the like, only thing that shuts Barb up. She's like, oh yeah, I, I should go to bed. Maybe I did drink I think too I'll, much. Yeah, I think a while and out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's like, go to bed, Barb. You're drunk. <laughs> it's great. But yeah, I get I get very sad for Barb and I get very sad for Claire's dad. Like Kim mentioned, Claire is the first girl who gets murdered. We see it all in POV. He's the one hiding in the closet. He strangles Claire. He suffocates her with her That's a great dry fucking bag. visual. Yeah. Just for killer POV being so new. The first of all, the movie opens on killer POV. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask your theories on this later, but we are watching the killer outside. We're getting all the glorious Christmas lights, but we're also seeing the killer, you know, climb up the lattice and into the attic. And um, that becomes his lair for the rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. He kills Claire first. She's in her room packing because she's meeting her dad the the next morning. And he's hiding in some plastic bags in her closet. And we see him attack her from the plastic bags. Yeah. It's such a creepy visual, especially because... The rest of the movie, Claire becomes this haunting vignette that we keep cutting back to. Yes. Because he keeps her tied up in the plastic in a rocking chair in the attic. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's like in, in the window. Like you could see her from the street. You, you can just, see her from the street. If you just knew she was there, which is crazy because like we're all looking for her. Everybody's, you know, on a huge hunt to find Claire. Everybody's worried about her. And we, we, every time we come back to the house, the first thing we see is her dead body up in the attic. The fucking dry cleaning bag still sort of like sucked into her throat when she took her last breath. It's so fucked. It is. It's, it's dark too. And it's like Christmas and she's like, 
She's wearing plastic up. wrap. Like, it's just like, oh, <laughs> like, uh. it's great. So the, that actress, apparently just surprise casting because she's a really uh, accomplished swimmer at the time. So she could hold her breath for very long and had no problem not blinking because she would have to suck in to keep the plastic taut inside of her mouth. And she was just really good at being a dead body. <laughs> Wow. But that's so dark. When we go cut to the next morning and we're with her father and she doesn't meet him when she's supposed to meet him, we already know she's dead. Yes. And he's like doing all these sort of like fun, you know, funny meetings with the house mother and seeing what his daughter's bedroom is like and how like, oh, she's, I don't know if this is the... I don't know if this is the right house for all my daughter. All of this daughter. hippie stuff Yeah, all and this boys. hippie stuff and boys. Yeah, he's starting to get... Uh, a bad impression of what the house mother's been letting them get away with. And there's all of these funny little moments, but we know there are dead bodies literally above them the whole time. Mm -hmm. And so dad also comes into town at a time where a stranger, a woman who we have never seen anywhere in the rest of the movie, is at the police station trying to file a missing report for her daughter. Her 13-year-old daughter. Her 13-year-old daughter. And later in the movie, like, because... They're all looking for Claire. They're at the police station trying to say, like, hey, this girl's missing. She was supposed to meet her dad. They're trying to get them to take it seriously. Yeah. Uh, Because they, one, assume she's just run off with her boyfriend. But when her boyfriend shows up and is like, I haven't heard from her, I haven't seen her. As far as I knew, she was meeting her dad today. Then the sorority girls, the boyfriend and the dad are going and they're like, our friend is missing. Yeah. So on top of that, we've got this this, this missing girl who's 13 and they're hosting, hosting seems like the wrong word, but they've gathered together as a search party like an look. official search party they've got dogs they've yeah. got um snowmobiles they've got police officers like this is an organized search party yeah and everybody from the sorority is there including claire's boyfriend and her dad to look for this missing girl now the you know unf- unfortunate thought is that maybe they'll also find claire but there's something maybe canadian about everybody getting together to just help out this stranger to find her daughter there's so much just meat to chew on as a filmmaker there that if you cut just this little storyline this my daughter is missing i'm meeting her her friends and her boyfriend for the first time as she's missing i'm in the city where she's gone to school there's another girl missing it's winter like the the weather is bad we're doing the search for two missing girls right i could watch that movie you don't even need the killer upstairs we get maybe 10 seconds, maybe less, where they discover, we never see it, but we discover the body of this 13-year-old girl. Uh, he, Claire's dad sees this body before the mother comes running up. I fucking love that moment. because like There's you, a little bit of relief in his eyes. That and it's the, not, the, yeah. The guilt of it being like, yay, it's not my daughter, but then him being there right as the mother discovers it's her daughter yeah. and but she's he's, 13. But and he's, he's, just, oh. he's there with her too. Like he doesn't, oh, you, like he doesn't do that standard movie thing. Like, oh, you don't want to see this. You don't, you don't want to see it. He lets her see her daughter. Like it's, it's, uh, I don't know. It's a complicated moment because it's like, he doesn't shield her from it, but then he's also there to like hold her afterward. Uh, it's great. You're right. That That's a whole movie right there. Like a character who's looking for their missing daughter who helps somebody else find their missing daughter's body. That's just a story. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and the complicated mm-hmm. thing there too is that one, we weren't, we did not know that the that no. the thirteen year old girl was dead. No, we did know that the sorority girl was. That's dead. the other crazy thing. So, like we know so many, we know the fate of so many people, but we're we're invested in this girl we've never met. But before. like we know that they have more in common in that moment than he does. Oh, so like there's just so <laughs> many psychologically, there's just so many layers there that you're like, why are we doing a horror movie right now? We have enough movie right here. That's what's so good about this movie god i love this movie. i could just watch the search party <laughs> also say, the fucking fur coats are just to die for <laughs> yeah no like you like uh you like fur coats this one's for you like I, I don't know like, chris's I, coat is just he looks like he's wearing a whole bear he's just living his best winter <laughs> life <laughs> what's so special about hero Bread's soft fluffy and delicious breads buns and tortillas these ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Now, I, I was going to come out with this at the beginning of the podcast. I think these girls live in the most dangerous neighborhood of the city. Like, whether it's set in Toronto or Chicago or Detroit or just, like, in the middle of Indiana somewhere, I think this is the most dangerous neighborhood in the world. Why? Because let's not forget that at the beginning of the movie, we don't know that the moaner, the person calling, is the killer. Mm Mm-hmm. We've got a guy who's making very creepy calls. Like, calls that are, uh... Gross. Obscene. Obscene. That's the word I was looking for. But then also, man, there's that fucking chilling moment in that first phone call where he's like, he's making all his dumb noise, like, (laughs) like saying obscene stuff he wants to do to them. Oh, when he gets lucid and he's like, I'm going to kill you. Right. Just like right before he hangs up. It's very calm and he's very present and there's, he's mincing no words about it, but just like, almost like he's stating a matter of a fact, like, I'm going to kill you. And (laughs) that's... horrifying like so we've got a serial killer on the phone number one number two we've got a serial killer in the house we remember we don't know that they're connected and i might fight you on it at the end of it i'm not sure they might not be they might not be fucking connected at all uh they probably are anyway so we've got these two pieces here we've got somebody in the neighborhood who has abducted and we later find out killed a 13 year old girl then we've also got jess's boyfriend peter now this is just like regular domestic who's just a douche (laughs) he's a huge douche and is maybe possibly capable of murder there is there are so many dangers in the air for these girls on christmas at their sorority but the thing too though is that all of those four things could be related maybe now the other could be the other like big coincidence of this whole uh, whole thing uh, maybe just like works out in their favor. You know, the simplest explanation is probably the correct one. Okay. And that the simplest explanation is that they're not coincidences. No, I mean, it's it's not a coincidence. I mean, I used the wrong word. I'm just saying that something... I think the killer killed a 13-year-old girl. Something to factor in here is that they also have maybe the most efficient police department I've ever seen in my entire fucking life. There's only like four cops, and they're doing doing a great job. There's only four cops, they're working around the clock, and every single thing that gets brought into their station, they're just like, well, this is obviously top priority number one. Like, we we have a sergeant at the beginning. It's because it's John Saxon. Did you have any questions? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, John Saxon is just like, I'm the dad of this police station and everything's getting fucking taken care of, goddammit. Fall God damn in it. line, gentlemen. They've got a sergeant who's doing triage at the front of the at the front of the station who seems a little overworked. He's He is way more 
uh, crammed in the rest of the department by the looks of it. And he gets all the grief. <laughs> he gets all the grief. But a, a, a woman comes in who says that her daughter has been missing for a couple hours. Now, obviously, she knows something's up. But you, I don't think you'd ever see the police department jump into action and get a search party going by sundown. On top of that, they're also looking for Claire. Like, it's not just the one girl that they're looking for. They are taking the Claire thing seriously. The fucking the sorority girls are like, we're getting weird phone calls. They're like, well, shit, we better get a guy on that, too. We don't have enough on our plate. Fuck it. You know, as soon as a problem comes across their desk, they're just like, well, we better roll up our sleeves, boys. You know, like. It is unlike any police department you've ever heard of in your entire life. Now, I have a theory about the killer. Okay. okay. But I think we're overdue for a quick break. So I'm going to take a quick little breather here. I'm going to collect my thoughts. And in the meantime, Kim's going to regale you with her Christmas tap dance. <laughs> All right. I, I, pre- I prepared a little ditty. Yeah. <laughs> what do you call this piece, Kim? Uh, oh, starry night. Oh, 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 holy night. Oh, Christmas night. Oh, boy. Oh, black Christmas night. (laughs) Take it away, Kim. (laughs) Look at her go. Oh, my God, she's on the table. How does she do it? Christmas. I'm done now. I'm finished. Marvelous, <laughs> Marvelous. Bravo. Really, truly a variety show like we promised. <laughs> okay, so I got a wild theory. Okay, what's your I wild got theory? A, I got a crazy theory that I thought it might be some fun to toss uh, across the desk, volley over to you, see what you think. Now, this also comes from seeing the movie in 2023, and... Movies nowadays, no one gets a line of dialogue unless they're coming back. Movies in the 70s, you you would just get extras, you'd get people who say nothing, but like today you would never pay a person a full day's wage to say maybe 10 lines of dialogue and then never come back in a movie. Like They're just not important whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So let's take that into consideration. Because you're like, oh, now they've now now we're in union territory. <laughs> it's it's a whole thing. I mean, this is a and I hate to ruin modern f- movies for you guys, but if you're watching a Who Done It and there's a character who you've only seen once and then they disappeared, chances are they're coming back and they're taking off a mask at the end of the movie. That's just how it goes. Nobody has one line of dialogue and then disappears forever like they do in a 70s movie. Uh, but when we're first introduced to Claire's dad. He gets hit in the face with a snowball. And a, a, uh, I don't know, 20-ish-year-old guy who's clearly a university student comes up and apologizes. Hey, man, I'm real sorry. I should have been watching those kids a little better. You know, he helps. He picks up his glasses, brushes the snow off his jacket, is a little snippy with them. He's (laughs) a little snippy. (laughs) He's a little helpful. Yeah, but but then he's helpful. I think he might be the killer. I mean, I have no reason. He's working. Possibly, but here's the thing. One, like I said... He's got a lot of dialogue. He's got to be integral to the plot for some in some in some small way. Uh, on top of that, he knows where the sorority house is. 
This random stranger just like, hello, do you, you wouldn't happen to know where my daughter, Claire Harrison, is? Like, oh, Claire Harrison, part of the Pi Kappa Beta family? Yeah, of course, that's right down here. You just cut through the path. He knows how to get there. He he probably almost had to restrain himself from saying, like, by the way, the attic door is unlocked if you want to just walk in from the lattice outside. I would say that Mr. Harris is at the school around... I don't know, maybe noon, and this guy, after meeting Claire's dad, because he's a sadistic fuck, I don't think he knows exactly who he is, but he would have known that Claire was going to meet her dad, right? Because he probably saw somewhere, somewhere in her room. This is a huge stretch, but it's so fun. And then I think on the way home, back to the the attic, into his lair, he kills a girl in the park. (laughs) Now, the other other thing that I want to point out, Mm -hmm. he does have a similar haircut to Peter. So, the thing about this movie is that it's the 70s, uh-huh. and everybody had a brown shag haircut. Every single mm. male in this movie under the age of 50 mm. has, a, has a shag haircut, mm. which is maybe why Peter is thought to be Billy, and also why Chris looks kind of like Peter and kind of like Billy. I don't know about that. I don't think that he hunt. Does he kind of look like Chris? I guess he does kind of look like Chris. He doesn't really look like Phil's boyfriend. Phil's boyfriend has a afro. Uh, but, I mean, he's got a similar shag to Peter. He definitely, and, like, I think the the person that kills Barb, we see very little of them, but we see enough of a silhouette that it really kind of looks like Peter. It does really kind of look it like Peter. It might be this stranger who threw the fucking snowball. No, it's not. Nah, it might be. I really think it might be. <laughs> it was a little kid that threw the snowball. Here's the other thing about this movie, and I looked very closely, and I have screen caps. I got receipts. I got evidence. You want to see it? I got it. Everybody wears the exact same clothing throughout the whole second half of this movie. Now, obviously, Jess has her fun sweater with the big old fingerprints she's on it. She's not wearing them in the second half. No, in the second the half, day. she's wearing a completely different outfit. Nobody gets changed, is what I'm saying. Because it's all one day. Because it's all one... If it was all one day in 2023, there'd still be four outfit changes. Don't fucking lie to yourself. Okay, what's the point? <laughs> all I'm saying <laughs> is that the one glimpse we get of the killer at the end is when he grabs Jess's hair. Mm-hmm. And we can see that he's wearing a black sweater. Uh, now, Peter is wearing a green sweater. I made very sure to note that down. Uh, we just see like his hand and just like a little bit of the cuff of his sweater. That kid who threw that snowball, black sweater. Okay. Underneath his jacket. He is also wearing you like, a white jersey. You solved the crime. I solved it, baby. I fucking knew it. Great. Um, <laughs> you hated every minute of this. No, he was just a side character. He helped. <laughs> of course he was. <laughs> he helped that man find the sorority house. It was fun to pretend like I solved the crime. No. Okay, so back on theories, though. The <laughs> yeah. very beginning of the movie, we are in killer POV. We are watching the killer Outside the house, being all creepy, looking Mm -hmm. in the windows. There's a party going on inside. He's climbing up the lattice into the attic. Then we cut into the house, and the front door is not closed properly. Yeah. And, you know, somebody's like, oh, we got to get this door fixed, la, la, la. Mm -hmm. Do you think the killer was already inside? Oh, and you think the killer POV is somebody else entirely? Is that what you're thinking? I think the killer was already in the attic came down to snoop, went outside to use the, that opportunity to look at them through the windows mm. and then go back in through the lattice. So you think, you think he's been living in the attic for a while? I think so. Interesting. I never thought about that. I did this time around try to take note of that door. It might even just be like, there's a couple things in this movie where I, I think it's just there to sort of add a little bit of like, oh, well, he, opportunity exists here. Like, it's not 100% pointing a finger at anybody in particular, mm-hmm. but it could be this person. The same way that there's a lot of evidence that it could be Peter. 
who's killing the girls. I don't know if that's entirely true, but I'm also not sure if I want to fully let Peter off the hook for everything. That's a great question. Um, I'm going to say sure. <laughs> I, <laughs> I just I think it's in- it is interesting that the door is open already. And it is creepy in that way that, like, he could have just barged right in the front oh, door absolutely. and been in the middle of their soiree. Yeah. Uh, that's not the kind of killer he is, but... No. But it is... It maybe does... Imp- I don't know. It adds a level of vulnerability. Yeah, like, they're n- not everybody's paying attention to whether the door is locked or not. There's so many people in the house. There's so much going on that you could get away with anything. Somebody could actually slip by without anybody noticing. In the same way that, like, I don't, I, I don't think you would every night before going to bed, make sure that the attic windows are closed and locked. But, you know, somebody probably opened it in the summer to get a little bit of breeze in there and then forgot to close it and it's been open ever since. Mm -hmm. That's a good idea. I like what you're saying there. Mm -hmm. The second half of this movie I find fascinating and frustrating because there are so many plates spinning. There's so many balls in the air. There's so many possibilities for who the killer could be. But not really. Well, so... It's Peter or it's not Peter. Uh, well, I, the other thing is like, do you, is it just human nature because we're watching a movie to think that the person who killed the girl in the park is the same person who's killing these girls in the sorority house? Like it, it, it is possible and probably likely that that's a completely separate story altogether. It and is that, possible. That has nothing. Do you think it's actually the person who's responsible for, for this stuff? Like, or do you think it's a separate story? Um, I think it's, it makes more, <laughs> right? It's tough. No, but it's probably a better assumption to to assume that they are related. Like, I think the, the more sensible assumption would be that all of the crimes happening that are alike are alike because they are of the same. But that's because you're watching a movie, you know? Like, I think Bob Clark is, is coming at this from a real-life point of view, where I think it's just coincidence that these two awful murders, yeah, or I, these I, several awful murders are happening Right next to each other. I think it is coincidence because somebody who wants to kill a 13-year-old is different than somebody who wants to kill, like, a 19-year-old. Yeah. And so we know that Peter goes off the deep Maybe. end when Jess when Jess says that she doesn't want to keep this baby. He's a fascinating character. And, like, you know, frankly, I don't think we have enough time to necessarily go into, like, every detail about him. He's, su- he's such a well-written character yeah. and performed. Like, yes. he's got a, he's he seems very high-strung, very neurotic. He's got a lot going for him. He's putting a lot of pressure on himself, on their relationship. There's just a lot happening for him right now oh yeah he's he feels like he has the weight of the world on his fucking shoulders and he's also a dick he's a dick and (laughs) he's looking for uh, i don't know the easiest way out at some point because yeah he's been grinding in this fucking school in this conservatory to be a concert pianist and i think he's finally realizing that maybe he's not cut out for it or maybe he's He's not not good good enough. enough yeah yeah and so he's finally he's oh the this is such good news it's not that i'm not good enough to be the dream that i had for my Myself. It's that I chose to give it up to start a family. It's, it's like he's been, he thinks, been handed this like yeah. a life raft that yeah, he yeah, can yeah, yeah. throw all, his, all of his excuses on. Yeah. And that's not what she wants. No, it's not what she wants. And I think even even if she wanted the baby, I think she'd be smart enough to realize that that is, that waiting for her down the road is, is a lifetime of resentment. Where he's eventually going to either resent her or the baby uh, for taking away his dreams. Like, oh, I had such a great life ahead of me, but because I got 
chained to this baby and this girl. I'll never be the concert pianist. I know I could have been like a hundred percent. That's probably who he'd end up being. Mm. And then it's, it's great because he crumbles when she takes that away from him. Cause he, she already, she comes out saying I'm pregnant and I don't want to keep it. And he's just like, so you're pregnant. eh?" (laughs) One of the best lines of dialogue is one of the best line deliveries in the whole movie is where they're just going down this like plinko board of like, well, I don't want that. And I definitely don't want this. And like all those dreams that I said I have. Oh, it's one of my favorite lines of the whole movie. Olivia Hussey's incredible in this movie. So good. And she, she, I think she, she does that compliment sandwich thing where she's like, I'm not talking about myself right now. I'm talking about you. Like, remember when we had all of these dreams and we got together and you wanted to be an accomplished pianist? I also had dreams and I still have those dreams. Yeah, and I'm not ready to give up on them. And then, so like, he's seeing all, like, her just like slap away all of these like things that he's presenting to her as like, this is what our future could be like and we could do this and I'll be so happy and like, you will be together. And then he's like, once he's realized that she's saying no to all of that, he's like, Okay, what about the baby? Like, he's still just like, we're, we, yeah. the baby's still on the table, and that's not going away. I'm Oh, I'm not letting you kill that. <laughs> and she's steadfast in it. She's like, no, I'm getting an abortion. There's nothing you can do about it. It's not really up for debate. Like, I'm kind of letting you know as a courtesy. This here presents an interesting, an interesting, I guess, little wrench in the it's Peter yes. as the killer. Because she doesn't tell Peter until the next day. Mm-hmm. At the conservatory. And Claire has already been killed. And Claire has already been murdered. Claire was murdered at the party the night before. Yeah. Now. And we've seen killer POV unless the killer POV is lying, which killer POV does not lie. No, never has, never will. Killer POV (laughs) does not lie. (laughs) The killer has been already creeping about the attic. Yeah. Is active in the house, calling girls, killing at least one of them. Yeah. Before Peter is given his quote-unquote motive yeah no you're absolutely right in that sense but before the big conversation (laughs) lots of buts here before their big conversation in the house where he realizes that she's really not backing down on this he's creeping up behind her in the house he was in the house he was upstairs yeah when he was in the house upstairs when a phone call was happening yes a creepy phone call he can hear she's having and he creeps down behind her we don't even know it's him at first we just see footsteps we think maybe it's the killer and he, and his excuse is like oh i just i was having a nap upstairs and yeah. you're just like that's mm, fucking creepy kind of seems like you so you just let yourself in and also door was unlocked huh that's now, definitely the mo- one of the moments that leans to him the most as the killer yes absolutely that and the fact that he does call back and well, one of the one of the phone calls with the moaner is saying the same words back to her that Peter has said, like, I'm not going to let you kill this baby, you know, and like he says that back to her in her in his weird fucked up moaner voice. And it really puts her off guard because she, that that makes her think that it's Peter. She's not willing to admit it yet. And she doesn't want to tell the cops that because she doesn't want them to just sort of go after Peter without evidence for it. But those are the exact words that Peter said. Which presents two things. Either the killer is upstairs and heard, or the killer is Peter. Yes. Now... The, the killer other- it proves that the killer was present for that conversation. And Peter does call back. One of the one of the other phone calls we get, not from the motor, from Peter, who's distraught and sounds unlike Peter normally. Uh, he's similar to the moaner, but he's... I have he's to very- say, all of the males, when they call, sound like... <laughs> the killer yeah they're all guilty (laughs) every single one of them bad even when john saxon calls i'm like it's the killer (laughs) but okay so we've got all of these like we're really painting a picture for it 
possibly being Peter. And we don't know where Peter is. Peter has left without his coat. He's left off in a huff. Uh, we very clearly see somebody kill Barb while she's upstairs, passed out drunk, and it looks just like Peter. Okay, so now I'm not in the I'm not in the Peter camp necessarily, but an argument for what I was saying earlier about the motive. Mm-hmm. Because he didn't know about the baby yet. Yeah. He potentially didn't know about the baby yet. He, We also see that he is under a lot of pressure with the school stuff. Yeah. We know he's got, like, that penultimate audition, um, which he does terrible at, and he breaks a baby grand about it. He destroys, a th- like, thousands of dollars piano. Yeah. And it's definitely the school's property. It's not his. Yeah. Also, because we've come into their lives so abruptly when we don't um we don't get a complete download of their relationship beforehand she's definitely made up her mind that she doesn't want this baby so we should assume that their relationship maybe hasn't been as good for very long yeah. especially while he's been maybe high strung through these finals or whatever he's going through mm-hmm. Her pregnancy has also kind of put things into perspective for her that she doesn't see him as a lifelong partner she doesn't want to marry him yeah what if he's already kind of got that inkling and in a way murdering everyone around her mm. might scare her into his arms oh what a sedi- what a psychopathic way of I'm just sa- I'm just saying like I like if we were if one wanted to make a motive for Peter one yeah. could yeah 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 the great thing about the Peter problem <laughs> is that he does some things at the end of the movie that truly don't make sense he's he, he does some things that a murderer might, okay? Now, first off, I gotta ask you, there is a police officer on guard outside of the sorority house who we later reveal has had his throat slashed. Yeah. Who did that? I... T- yeah. Because we, we also... Why didn't Peter see it when he came up to the house? We do, we... we right? There's, there's some great questions here. Now... We we are watching the killer's movements a lot in the sorority house once the girl once once Phil is there with Jess and Barb's upstairs asleep like they're alone the phones have been tapped so the police aren't there they're back at the police station uh, they're actually trying to find Peter at one point they discover the the smashed piano where he literally kills his own future because uh, there's no fucking way they're gonna let him stay in the conservatory like no. this is the death nail in the coffin of his the entire future that he has planned himself and that's why he's hanging everything on that baby that she doesn't want to have. Mm-hmm. So there's a pretty good chance that he kills that cop because he doesn't, he needs to get back into the house and he can't have anybody stopping him and he can't have anybody seeing him. We see the killer's movements throughout the house a lot. There's actually this time around, I think you and I finally saw like a shadow of a person behind Jess and Phil that they don't see that there's somebody skulking around listening to yeah. their conversation. I don't know if that's like a continuity error. You think it's or a what crew member? <laughs> I don't. I honestly, we're not given enough for me to definitively make it a conclusion there, but there is movement behind Phil's head. Okay. So Jess gets the phone call from the police saying the calls are coming from inside the house. We've finally traced the phone calls. You need to get out of the goddamn house now. Do not go and save Barb. Do not save Phil. Do not pass go. Just get outside. Oh, her performance there is so fucking good. It's when incredible, When she's screaming right? desperately for them, but she's like clinging kind of to the safety of the inside of the door. Yep. And she's pleading for them to respond and they don't. Oh, it it's just hard. Kill- it it's kills It's very me. hard. It's the one time somebody goes upstairs in a killer movie where you're just like, yeah, we're with you, baby. You go up there. You're such a 
good friends. Yeah, she's great. But that's where she encounters, she sees their dead bodies. She encounters the killer. She doesn't see him. She just sees his eyeball through the crack of a door. And she hears him go, it's me, Agnes. It's Billy. And, uh, you know, she, she hits him with the door and tries to run off. That's, you know, again, where we see his hand. She locks herself in the basement. He can't get through the door. And while she's finding a spot to hide... We do hear some footsteps upstairs, and then it gets quiet. So the killer has kind of disappeared, maybe possibly left the house. And then, at the exact same time, Peter is trying to get in through a window in the basement. He's he's asking for Jess. Like, Jess, are you in there? Like, why would he think she's in the basement? I know. It's not a finished basement. It is like a crawl space of a basement, the way basements used to be. It's just a fucking storage space full of junk. And he's, like, looking for her, he's asking for her, and then he kicks the window in. Like, he he breaks the window and gets inside, and then he's still all sort of, like, lovey-dovey concerned when he finds Jess. Like, oh, Jess, what are you Why doing down you here? Why aren't you answering me? Why aren't you answering me? Are you okay? Like, he's, it's, something is wrong about what's happening. And, you know, he, he kind of lunges out for her when we cut away, and when the police find her, she has beaten him to death with the fire poker that she's taken from the fireplace. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the movie, you know, like we, you know, she's in shock. She's passed out. Everybody leaves. We the glide cops... through the house and we see like all the scenes of the crime and it's wonderful. Yeah. The cop, the cops are pretty certain that it was Peter. She killed the attacker. She killed the killer. Everything's great. Everything's fine. But we hear footsteps upstairs. We hear the whispers of Billy and we hear the phone ringing again because he is not gone. He's still in the house. Uh, everything's quiet except for that killer mouse. And nothing's been resolved. Like, all that's happened is that she's, like, a bunch of her friends have died. She killed Peter. And they haven't found the bodies upstairs. The they house haven't mother... Found, yeah, they haven't found the house mother. They haven't found Claire. Are still in the attic. Claire's father is still there, and he passes out from shock in, in, in all of it. Because I think, he, like, he's definitely... It's dawning on him. That his daughter is most likely dead. Somebody mm-hmm. is clearly targeting the girls of the sorority house, and, you know, it's just a matter of time before I find my daughter's body. I think... None of this is connected. I think the girl in the park is a separate story. Mm-hmm. I think Peter is a separate story. Mm-hmm. And obviously he's, I don't think he is quote unquote Billy. I don't think he actually killed anybody except maybe the cop. Like Peter may have killed the cop in order to gain access to the house. I think that might be a stretch. I think it's a it's a fun theory. It's a fun theory. Oh, you think it was just somebody who was just like, fuck coppers. <laughs> like it was, no, I that think was it was a- probably Billy. I, I mean, it's likely that it was Billy. It seems it seems it seems improbable, but it's it's possible. But you could also present at the end that Billy is not actually in the attic, and and it's just like film, like it's the end of Friday the Thirteenth Part One. Oh, I don't know. I like playing that because Jess is alone and she's sedated, and now you're like, oh fuck, like it's it's not over. Mm-hmm. So in in terms of it all being disconnected. I th- I really do think Peter was going to kill her. Like, I think Peter was coming into the house and he was going to kill Jess. I think he was crazy and jealous and he wasn't going... Because he, he's like, if you kill this baby, you're going to regret it. You, like, you, like, something's going to happen. Like, he's really... There's a darkness of about Peter with it, this. Especially once you've you've kind of put into perspective him breaking the piano like i one i when i watch it i'm like oh what an overreaction but you're so right he's kicked out of school for this his career is not like him failing is not career ending no his him failing is a setback yes him behaving the way he did 
is career ending. That's the end. You're like that is that's it. Like this is like this is like getting face tattoos. So you're like, I'm never getting a day job. I'm gonna be a musician, or I'm gonna die trying. You know? <laughs> I'm a musician or a criminal. Yeah, or well, a tattoo artist. Yeah, or both. You know, I could, I could be all three, frankly. Um, I th- yeah, I really do think that if it wasn't for the girl, the other girls around her being murdered, Jess would have been killed. Like, let's say in a perfect world where none of the other sorority girls have been killed and that girl in the park never I died. I love that I idea. I think Peter would have killed Jess and the only reason she survived is because of everything else that's been happening. It's because she's on guard because of, of another killer. Which she thinks might be Peter. That's the other thing. So, wow. I mean, don't get me wrong. There is a chance yeah, that Peter's getting into the house and it's it's actually If she innocent, wasn't afraid but... of a killer, she wouldn't have reacted to him being that way no, at all. No, not at all. The only thing that saved her life is the fact that all of her friends are dead. So, no, the only thing that saved her life is the fact that there are potentially two killers after her. Oh, that's true. Because at the, at, in that moment, Peter is going to kill her. Fuck. I love that. I love thinking that there are two killers in that moment. In that moment, there definitely are. Maybe, well, I mean, maybe <laughs> even three. <laughs> oh, fuck. That's good. Yeah, this is such a great movie. Like, it's, it's The weirdest thing is, like, I've seen this movie at least 30 times, and the fact that we're having these conversations is crazy. Well, also that you don't find it frustrating. It's not that you watch the movie and it's frustrating that it's never opened itself up to you or that you've never cracked the code mm-hmm. on it. It's like, I will never solve the movie, but I'm fascinated every single time I watch it. Like, yeah. It is such a great magic trick of a whodunit. Uh, and that like you're you're never gonna know how it was done, where exactly everybody was, and it all fits together so perfectly. Yeah, and and you're never gonna understand the calls from the killer. No, as much as you want to, and <laughs> as much as black black Xmas tried. So that's the thing too is watching it now retro- retroactively. No, having watched Black Xmas 2006, it's so hard not to impose that story yeah. on the phone calls. It's like trying to forget that that Michael and Lori are brother and sister. It's right? it, it's so hard to just be like, okay, I I need to hear what is actually being said about like Agnes and Billy and what we did and wh- who are you and you're trying to put a narrative narrative in it yeah in the same way that you know you see faces in everything like you're trying to put a narrative to these phone calls but that's also why i think maybe it's everything is completely disconnected because like as a person watching a movie you're trying to put a narrative to it like okay so the killer killed this 13 year old girl uh, after killing claire and then he came here and then he did this and it's like we're, we're trying to connect that all together when i think it is just all happenstance like mm-hmm. it's all coincidence that it's happening together at the same time they're just three killers yeah. in this movie. Yeah. what a, That's what I'm saying. What a dangerous neighborhood. <laughs> the most dangerous neighborhood in, on campus. In reality, it's a gated community because we drove up there and we yeah, definitely yeah, snuck yeah, yeah. in. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. They do not want you to go up there and see their pretty house. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it, looks it, looks, exactly it looks exactly the same. It looks exactly the same. And they decorate for Christmas. Yeah, it's pretty great. Yeah. What an incredible movie. Four out of four across the board, right? Wow. Whose death hurts you the most? That's tough. I mean, like, I, oh, ooh, I don't know. I, I want to say, I want to say Claire because she never gets discovered, and you just see so many people worried for her and looking for her. But it's probably Phil. It feels as hard because she's just going to check on Barb. Yeah, and we don't see it, and it's sudden, and yeah, Barb's Barb sucks too because she's just like asleep. And if, if her mom wasn't a bitch, like she probably wouldn't be there. None of them would be there. That's the other thing, right? And well, I, she wouldn't be asleep because she wouldn't have been o- over drinking. Yeah, yeah. She wouldn't have been sad drinking. She would have been happy drinking. 
I think the 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 scene of them finding the thirteen year old girl is just like peak cinema. Oh my god, it's so good. It's and it's all just in expressions, right? It's like you just from what you know about these people and how they react, and it's all so quick. Oh, he's a great filmmaker, you know. Did it, you know? That- I wish he did more dark stuff because yeah. from the two fi- like these two films that we've watched together. They really delve into psychology and like the human condition in such an interesting way that yeah. I I just want more. I just want to consume. Like yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> give yeah. give me things to pontificate about. I want Bob Clark to ruin my afternoon. <laughs> Did you know that during development, the studio, Warner Brothers, tried to get him to write a scene where Chris, Claire's boyfriend, goes up to Jess while she's asleep at the end of the movie and says, don't tell him what we did, Agnes, <gasps> and then kills Jess. No. And then it's revealed that Chris was the killer the whole time. Wow. And he fought for it. He said, no, we need to have an ambiguous ending. This is like, this, this, the, the end of Chris this Chris in that coat? He's not the <laughs> in murderer. In that coat? In that coat? In that hockey game? <laughs> yeah, with that, with her dad? No, yeah, that's, that's what the studio wanted. They wanted a clean end to it right and you got to assume that like even after the movie was made he probably still had to continue that fight they're like nope i think you should go back in and do some reshoots and he was like absolutely fucking not and thank god he didn't because this movie's this movie's perfect Mm. does that mean that chris is potentially i never suspect chris no to be fair i don't ever really suspect peter i just think he's fucking creepy and when he's in the basement you're just like why are you doing this no like the movie th- th- there's the occasional moment where like the movie's building a case against peter they're mm-hmm. making it possible for it to be peter but ultimately you're it could just as easily not like you're you're like oh you know he's going through his own thing it's separate from this you know if there weren't a whole bunch of murders going on he would just be overreacting and a little emo yeah i just think for when he comes in the fucking basement window (laughs) the killer having to juggle sneaking around upstairs and getting to the other phone line and murdering somebody and also not being seen is enough job for him to do yeah versus like playing a a concert score and like going and breaking a piano and then like trying to convince his girlfriend to keep her baby that's too much for billy to like float hey man if this was the year 2001 absolutely it would have been fine like everybody had multiple personalities they were the 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 fucking the productivity level of murderers in the early 2000 horror movies was insane they were they they were they were doing everything they the were fast travel <laughs> and that's going to do it for this week's edition of the bob clark creepy Christmas spooktacular. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a hoot. It's definitely the strangest variety show I've ever been part of. I apologize if our if our talk on the film was very disjointed. It is hard to talk about a movie you've seen a hundred times without getting into like the minutiae of it. Oh, yeah, and no. And not going, like, I, I don't think we went through the plot at all, so if you're not too familiar with the film, you're like, oh, fuck, f- sorry for that. <laughs> what the fuck are they talking about? You're like, oh, shit, they brought up the red yarn in the board. <laughs> <laughs> Like, we went full JFK conspiracy theory on this one. Uh, So hopefully you watched the film before you listen to this. Yeah, let us know what you think of Black Christmas. Like, what's your definitive version of Black Christmas? Like, I don't care if you like the new Blumhouse Black Christmas. Which one's your favorite? I mean, you're wrong, but you can tell us. You are absolutely wrong, but I will will not make fun of you for it. Yeah, we're not mean about it. Like what you like. (laughs) I like the 2006 version. I think it's great. It's, I don't keep them in the same spot in my head. No. Like, they're not in the same 
filing cabinet, but it's in a cabinet. Yeah, it's like trying. It's like talking about. I the, filed it. The, I didn't. <laughs> I, I, didn't <laughs> I filed it away. <laughs> I didn't pretend it didn't exist. <laughs> yeah, no. Let us know what you thought of uh, of Bob Clark's Black Christmas. Like whether this is a movie that you rewatch constantly. Uh, honestly, as long as you revisit a Black Christmas every every Christmas, I think that is that is the the most any horror fan can hope for. I think there are perfect Christmas movies. I think two of them at the very least are perfect Christmas movies. Uh, and yeah, I'm never, ever, ever going to get sick of watching this movie and just, it hooks me immediately. Like it's it. I, I know all the beats. I know all the characters. I know everything about the movie and I'm always like putting on my detec- detective hat. Like, Ooh, no, we're going to get to the bottom of it this time. And you can watch a different character every single time you watch the movie. Like yeah. you can watch it as John Saxon's movie. Oh, yeah. You can watch it as Jess's movie. You can watch it as Barb's movie. Yeah. You can watch it as Phil's movie. Like they're such good characters that they could be the entire focus of your attention. The only version of this movie you should not watch is the Billy version. Now, not like some saying, you should watch this movie from Billy's perspective. I'm saying that if you own a Blu-ray copy of this movie, there is an audio commentary with Billy for the full hour and a half, and it's insufferable. Like, it's <laughs> it's perfect. It's Billy, all right. But truly, you should get a... I love the idea that maybe he just took over, like, the recording booth. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. He's in character, like Nick Mancuso, in character as Billy throughout the whole fucking thing. And we've tried. It's very hard. You should get, like, a Pizza Hut gift certificate for finishing it. <laughs> like, you get, like, a, a free scholastic book and a slice of pizza for finishing it. Like, you deserve an award. Honor system? Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, man. Nobody finishes it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you blow the dust off the gift certificate before you give it to anybody. It just expires in 1999. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, but yeah, that's going to do it for us this holiday season. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Uh, we hope you are having, uh, we hope we're having a happy holidays. We hope you've been finding some creepy horror movies to watch. Uh, let us know what you've been watching and what you think of Bob Clark's Black Christmas over in the Nightmare on Film Street Discord at nofspodcast.com slash discord. There's a link in the episode description. You don't even have to type anything out. We're going to be back again next Thursday with a apocalyptic year end, maybe possibly life end movie uh, we're talking about end of days with our own Schwarzenegger it's going to be great Kim's been looking forward to this one for a long time uh, we're going to talk about Gabriel Byrne as Satan he does an incredible job Ooh. but in our final segment of the variety show we're going to close out I didn't prepare another tab with, <laughs> we're going to close out with a little selection from the Mormon Tabernacle from the local Mormon Tabernacle Choir featuring Black Christmas's own Billy Get you next time. 
Help us to grow the horde. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. More terror can be found lurking on our website, nofspodcast.com. Until next time, stay creepy, fiends. Thank <laughs> you.